0: This episode could be triggering for sensitive listeners and contains mature content. It may not be suitable to all listeners. Should you need any emotional assistance, please see the show notes for telephone numbers that you can call. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are my own and do not reflect the official policy or position of the podcast. Any content provided by contributors such as the host, guests, bloggers, Sponsors or authors are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, group, club, organization, company, individual or anyone or anything. So when you grew up in a place like that, that you don't know anything about the outside world or about anything else, so you don't realize that you're not supposed to suffer. You you think it's just, that's a normal life because it says in the Torah, and they explained to us a few times that if I'm not punishing you, so that means I hate you. That's how they translate it. So as a kid, you think, okay, If they don't punish me, they hate me, so that means if you get punished, they love you, right? This is Decoding Cults, and I'm your host, Paulsy. You are listening to Left to Whore, Part 3. In our last episode, we looked at the group's time in Canada and how they eventually had to flee this country as well. This week, we will be continuing the story of the group in Guatemala. If you haven't listened to the first two parts of the story, I suggest that you go back and listen to parts 1 and 2. That way, this part will make more sense. I'm going to give a blanket trigger warning again for this episode, as it contains many elements of child abuse and other abuses. Please take care when listening. I would like to apologize again if I mispronounce any of the words. In 2014, most of the Lev followers had fled to Guatemala and had temporarily settled in Guatemala City. However, the group had not outrun the Israeli or Canadian law enforcement, who had reached out to the Guatemalan authorities about the Lev Tehor and the allegations against them. The Guatemalan authorities launched a probe into the allegations, but found nothing that concerned them and they gave the group permission to stay. I'm pretty sure that, like the time the media descended on them in Canada, they put their best foot forward for Guatemala. Even though the group lived mostly on the outskirts of town, the locals were not exactly thrilled to have these strange people who dressed in all black and didn't speak their language in their neighbourhood. There were a few clashes around cultural and religious differences, and the fact that some of the younger children were not attending the local schools, or any schools for that matter. The locals did, however, eventually become accustomed to this strange group and their funny ways. A few of the Guatemalan people even joined the group. But, just as in other groups, although there were people that joined, there were also people that left and spoke out against the group. Some of the allegations which came out from ex-members were downright terrible. I'm going to insert a trigger warning here. Some of the information is rough, so please take care when listening or skip over the next few minutes. In the group, lying was seen as the biggest sin. If a child was caught in a lie or did not follow one of the rules, they would receive mulcot, which is basically lashes. That on its own is not great, but the leaders of the group took it a step further. They would call an assembly and preach about the evilness of a lie. They'd then call up the alleged offender and make them strip down to their undergarments. The children were then made to say that they know the punishment which they were about to receive was to cleanse their soul. They'd lie face down on a sort of altar in front of their peers. Then. The male leaders for the boys and the leaders' wives for the girls would lash them all over the back of their body. At times, this would last for an hour. Oh, and if you cry, you get extra lashes. Then, to add insult to injury, once the lashing was done, you had to kiss the hand of the person who had just hit you. The leaders would tell the children that they were doing this from a place of love and that they were saving their souls. You see, apparently these beatings cleansed them from their sin and ensured that they would now get into heaven. Children who were deemed disobedient would also be locked into rooms for hours on end. These rooms would be locked from the outside. I'm going to insert a small trigger warning here for suicidal ideation, so... If this in any way will harm you, please skip over the next 10 seconds. One young man who had managed to escape the group, Mendy Levi, told in a YouTube story exposing the cult that the beatings and torture happened almost on a daily basis. It got so bad for him that at one time he had tried to take his own life by drinking a mixture of bleach and sugar. Then. There were the allegations around Shlomo and some of his inner circle. It was alleged that Shlomo would have some of the young boys sleep in bed with him and it was also said that these children would have to do what was alluded to as sexual things for Tikkun. Now, according to Judaism for Dummies, Tikkun is a term used within the Jewish teaching which means that the greater purpose of Jewish identity and observance has to do with the healing of both our planet and ourselves. But, in the left whore community, it was used as a term for atoning for one's sins. These poor kids must have been so confused. I can bet that none of them did anything wrong, but were made to atone in this awful way to this disgusting old man who, To many of them was akin to a god. Whenever a follower would leave the group, they would go onto a list. This list of names was then given to all of the members, including the children, and they would be tasked to pray for the death of these deserters. I just can't fathom why you would get a child to pray for someone's demise. Maybe to scare them and to ensure they stay? I, I just don't know. The Guatemalan authorities received a request from the Israeli government to look into allegations of child abuse happening within the group. In September 2016, they raided the yard of one of the Leftahore members. Some of the children were taken and a few of the members were arrested for child abuse. After this raid, most of the group then moved 171 kilometers or 106 miles west to the small tourist town of San Juan La Laguna, which is on the shores of Lake Atitlán. This time, however, instead of settling in the town, they took to the forest. They acquired used tractors and cleared away trees and rocks. They then set up makeshift shelters comprising of wooden frames with plastic or tarp walls and corrugated iron roofs. Some of the more affluent members lived in repurposed shipping containers. Only the rabbi was allowed to have air conditioning in his living quarters. The weather in San Juan La Laguna averages between highs of 26 to 28 degrees Celsius or 78 to 82 degrees Fahrenheit during the day and 16 degrees Celsius or 60 Fahrenheit or even as low as 9 Celsius or 48 Fahrenheit at night in the winter months. For the people in the makeshift shelters, it must have been sweltering during the day, and given that the men and boys were wearing long-sleeved shirts, long pants and hats, and that the women and girls were covered from head to toe in their black garbs, it must have been awfully hot. A fence was erected around the entire compound with only one gate in or out. This gate was always locked and manned by armed guards. Only people who had explicit permission from the leaders could leave the compound. They called this compound which they created Bouval. Some of the group did stay in the city in an apartment complex. On some of the undercover video footage I found on YouTube, you can see the horrific conditions that some of the followers lived in. One thing that absolutely broke my heart was seeing small children, toddlers, being kept in these makeshift fenced pens like where you would keep chickens. And that was their play area. There, in the dirt. No toys, no grass, nothing. In April 2017, the Israeli Attorney General and concerned family members of the members within Lev Tahor petitioned the Israeli court to investigate the group. Upon hearing the testimony from former members and from concerned family members, an Israeli court ruled that Lev Tahor was a dangerous cult and they had major concerns about the abuse of minors. Then, in June of 2017, there was another raid on the apartment building in Guatemala City, this time by Israeli authorities. Shlomo and a few of his followers fled to Mexico and they were granted a six-month stay in the country. The group settled in the state of Chiapas, near the river. If you recall from the previous episode, they need to be near a source of water for their bathing rituals. Now, Before we continue, I just want to explain the concept of mikvah. The mikvah is a ceremony where the participant first cleans their entire body and then submerges into a pool or bath in which you can stand and fully submerge. This is filled with fresh water. This will be water from a natural source and does not include tap water. This ritual is seen as the cleansing of the body and the spirit. Most men and women will partake in mikveh on the morning before the Sabbath starts. All women and some men also partake just before they are to wed. On Friday morning, 7 July 2017, Shlomo wanted to go down to a nearby river to perform mikveh before the Sabbath. It had rained heavily the night before, and the current was pretty strong that day. Although he warned his group against going into the rough waters, He decided that he wanted to perform the ritual anyway. He asked one of his trusted followers to accompany him down to the river. The follower was to stand on the bank of the river and hold on to one end of the rope, while Shlomo would enter the river holding on to the other end. At some point, the follower felt the rope slacken substantially and when he pulled on the rope, it came all the way back to him but Shlomo was nowhere to be found. The follower ran back to the group, gathered a few males from the group and they went down the river to search for Shlomo. About a kilometre or a thousand yards downstream from where he had entered the river, they found him tangled in some branches which were stuck to the side of the river. It seemed like Shlomo had been swept away by the current and had at some point struck his head against jagged rocks and drowned. He was 54 years old. News spread around the world that the founder and leader of Left to had perished. There was speculation that he had let go of the rope on purpose because of the allegations of sexual abuse and that the authorities were hot on his heels around this. My feeling is that he was way too narcissistic to do this to himself and most likely thought that he was so holy that he would never come to any harm. But this is just my opinion. Many people wondered what would happen to the group now that the founder and spiritual leader had perished. But Shlomo had groomed his son Nachman for the role, and he easily stepped up to the task. Nachman, however, was, if you could possibly believe it, even harsher than his father. You see, after the last few raids, the group was split up. I guess to make it harder for the authorities to find them and then they would have various places for Shlomo to hide. Nachman formed a group of three men and one woman who he most trusted and he made them his enforcers, who he called the Khanhala. According to jewishlanguages.org, in Yiddish, Hanhala means administrator or senior staff at camp. This group would be his muscle and dole out most of the punishments. If you did anything wrong in the eyes of Nachman or his henchmen, you would be banned from speaking to anyone for an entire year. You could also be locked up in the shul for one or two weeks. Nachman took arranged marriages a step further. All girls would be married off at the age of 12 they could be matched to boys or men aged between 16 and 30. He would announce to the men that he had made a match and in the majority of the cases, they would only meet their wife on the day of the wedding. Refusing a match was unacceptable, punishable and could even lead to excommunication. Young brides would be required to immediately have sex with their husbands so that they can get pregnant they are also told to lie to outsiders by pretending to be older than they are or not to let them know that they are married. When these girls do fall pregnant, they are told to give birth at home and not at a hospital. The hospital staff would obviously notice how young these girls are and probably at the least ask uncomfortable questions and at the most alert authorities. When people got sick, They were refused medical treatment. Nachman would simply say that you need to have faith in him and you will be cured. In those very rare cases where people would be at death's door, he would then let them go to the hospital. But in most of those cases, they were always too late. Yeshua Levi, who had been a follower of the group since its inception in Israel, had followed Shlomo all over the world. He got an infection in his leg. Now, this was treatable if tended to quickly, but the leaders refused to let his family take him to the hospital. The family was told to have Imuna, and everything would be okay. Imuna is faith. After a few weeks, he was extremely ill, and the leaders finally allowed him to go and seek medical treatment, but refused to let his family. Even his eldest son accompanied him to the hospital. When he finally made it to the hospital, there was nothing that the doctors could do for him and sadly he passed away. The family were told that his death was their fault and that they must have sinned for this to have happened. Nachman and Lefter would pray on the kindness of the greater Jewish community around the world. When a husband would pass, the leaders of Lefter Hall would reach out to these communities, claiming that they were setting up a fund to assist the widow and her family financially. Donations would pour in from all over, but the family would not see a cent of this money. It would go right into the leaders' coffers. It seems like Nachman wanted people to be loyal to him and also fear him. On the 23rd of July 2017, Just over two weeks after the death of his father, he decided to put one of his sister's loyalty to the test. Now, in one report, it is said that he gave her bread containing sesame seeds and in the other report, he sent her a handful of sesame seeds. Regardless of how it happened, he had made her consume sesame seeds. This may not seem worrisome, except that she was severely allergic to sesame seeds. She was so afraid of disobeying her brother and leader that she ate it and suffered an immediate allergic reaction. According to Healthline.com, sesame allergies may not receive as much publicity as peanut allergies, but the reactions can be just as serious. Allergic reactions to sesame seeds or sesame oil can cause anaphylaxis. An anaphylactic reaction occurs when your body's immune system releases high levels of certain potent chemicals. These chemicals can include anaphylactic shock. When you are in shock, your body pressure drops and your airway constricts, making it difficult to breathe. Prompt emergency medical attention is essential if you or someone you know has an allergic reaction to sesame. If caught on time, Most food allergies can be treated without lasting consequences. Sadly, Nachman reacted very slowly to his sister's rapidly declining condition and by the time he finally allowed her to be taken to the hospital, again it was too late. She had succumbed to her allergy on her way there. Of course, he claimed to be blameless in the situation and said that she had died because of her lack of faith in him as the new rabbi. Additionally, he made his now widowed brother-in-law marry the widow of Yeshua Levi. Remember the woman whose husband died from the infection in his leg? He made his brother-in-law marry her. Nachman, however, did not want his nieces and nephews mixing with Yahushua's children. So his children were sent to live in other parts of the compound and basically left to fend for themselves. Two of the sons, Yol and Mendy, managed to escape. Yol, one month before his wedding, when he was forbidden to see his mother once again, was incredibly hungry and managed to get away at 2am that morning. His brother Mendy left a short time later, when he got wind that he was set to marry his 12-year-old cousin. Next, Nachman turned his attention to one of his other sisters, Sarah Teller, or more specifically, her 12-year-old daughter, Yante. Sarah objected to Yante being married and was ostracised by the community. When Yante turned 13, she was married to 19-year-old Jacob Rosner. Mind you, this was not a legal marriage, as it wasn't registered anywhere. They were married in a religious ceremony and were told that they needed to start creating a family as soon as possible. One day, in October 2018, Sarah took Yanti and her other children and fled back to the USA, where she tried to hide in Woodridge, New York. That November, she was granted temporary custody of her children and their father was prohibited from communicating with them at all. Nachman tasked some of his henchmen to accompany him so that they could track Sarah down and bring her 13-year-old back to her husband and bring her siblings back to the compound. They tracked her all the way to New York and set a plan in motion to get the children. They sent a gift to Yante which included honey, coffee and a cell phone. Uh, through which they could communicate with her. Now, if you're wondering why Yante would entertain such a scheme, so was I. We need to remember that the group and its rules was all she had ever known, and she had been taught from birth how evil the outside world was. So, when her mother took her away from her home and her husband, she must have been terrified that she would come to some harm, or even got a hull. Eventually, Yante and one of her brothers, 12-year-old Chaim, met with Nachman, who sped them away and out of the state. When Sarah realised what had happened, she immediately contacted the authorities, who, thankfully, sprang into action very quickly and the FBI got involved as well. They found the trail fairly quickly. The children had been taken to Scranton, Pennsylvania, which is around 91 miles or 146 kilometers east of where they were. From there they had flown to Mexico City in Mexico, where they were then to stay for a while, until they could continue on to Guatemala. Luckily, the authorities caught up with them in Mexico and the children were brought back to their mother. Nachman Halbrandt and Maya Rosner were charged with kidnapping. This, however, did not stop them from trying to kidnap the children again. The group sent cell phones to the children on four different occasions. Luckily, Sarah managed to find them and confiscate them. On one occasion, she had recorded a conversation with one of the leaders still in Guatemala. He told her that he was not afraid of her or anyone else. He further said, We planned to help every Jew. We planned to help Yante. We plan to help Chaim. I will take them out from under your hands and will take them back to their father with God's help. The group tried to kidnap the children again in March of 2019 and March of 2021. I guess they would have tried sooner than March 2021, but as you all know, the whole world basically shut down in March 2020 with the COVID pandemic. The Guatemalan authorities were also breathing down their necks around all of the allegations of child abuse and started to raid the compound. If you are keeping score, that is now the fourth country which they have pissed off. They were not welcome in Israel, the US, Canada or Guatemala anymore. So where would they go? Especially since their leader was now being held custody, some of the group applied for political asylum in Iran They even swore allegiance to the state's supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali, but not all of them would make it there. The group started to split up, some remaining in Guatemala, some moving back to Mexico. Back in the US, the Department of Justice declared on 19 April 2021 that charges of child exploitation offenses would be brought against Nachman Heilbrant, Maya Rosner, Yakov Weingarten, Shmuel Weingarten and Yol Weingarten. Their trial started in October 2021 and on the 10th of November 2021 they were convicted of conspiring to transport a minor with the intent to engage in criminal sexual activity, conspiring to travel with the intent to engage in illicit sexual conduct, international parental kidnapping and conspiring to commit international parental kidnapping. In April 2022, Nachman and Maya were each sentenced to 12 years imprisonment. Although, their time in custody leading up to their sentencing will count towards their prison term. They will be on probation for 5 years after their release, so they should be released around 2031. Nachman will be 51 and Maya will be 56 by the time they are released. But what happened to the rest of the followers and some of the leaders, you ask? Well, their lives have not exactly been sunshine and roses. There were multiple raids on their homes in both Guatemala and Mexico. Some of the men were even arrested. It got to the point where the majority of the group abandoned the Guatemalan compound. A few members stayed behind to try and sell off any of the equipment that was left behind. I guess being on the run with no real income can be costly, so they would need every cent that they could get. I just hope they use it to properly feed and clothe the children. Some ex-followers went to visit the compound after it had been completely abandoned. It's eerie now, like a ghost town with small remnants of a life gone by. At first, 70 of the followers tried to make their way to Iran, however, when they stopped in Iraq on their way to Iran, Iraqi officials deported them to Turkey. I'm not 100% sure why they did this, the followers of Lev Tuhol regrouped and decided to try their luck in Romania, but they were turned away once again and sent back to Turkey. They attempted to settle in the small country of Moldova, which is situated next to Ukraine, but again they were shown away. Next, they tried Sarajevo, but no dice. One news outlet described their movements as bouncing all around the Balkans. The last reports I could find said that they went to Bosnia, where people are permitted a three-month visa, but they never applied for further visas or even asylum. Apparently, they left there in the middle of the night and one person claims that he heard a member mention Bulgaria, but we don't actually know where they are for now. I do truly hope that the children who were removed from the group have found a good life, and I hope that those still in the group are well and safe, and that they get some semblance of a normal life someday. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the subscribe button and rate and review us. It will go a long way into improving the podcast and helping others find it. Please invite your family and friends to listen too. If you're listening on YouTube, please subscribe and like the video. You can also leave a comment if you want to. You can find us on Facebook and you can email us at decodingcults at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. If there are any topics around the workings of cults which you would like further explanation on, or if there is a cult like this one that you'd like to hear about, email me or post it in the Facebook group. Remember to go and check out By Design Crafts SA and Endeavor AV and tell them that I sent you. The amazing logo art was created by the tattoo artist Jark Jacobs. Thank you so much for listening. We'll